This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Biography. Today I'm speaking with Mark Thomas Edwards, Professor of U.S. History at Spring Arbor University. We are discussing his new book, Walter Lippmann, American Skeptic, American Pastor. Walter Lippmann is arguably the most important journalist in American history, popularizing terms like the Cold War and writing a news column for over 30 years with more than 10 million weekly readers. He influenced both powerful world leaders and public perception on a multitude of issues. In this volume, Mark pays special attention to the spiritual life and religious views of Lippmann. By taking this approach, Mark reveals Lippmann's complexity and provides a window into the American century. Mark, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Glad to be here. Great to, ha- great to have you. And before jumping into the text, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself to the audience uh, and tell them a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. My name's uh, Mark Edwards, coming from uh, Spring Arbor University, where I've been since 2010 teaching uh, a variety of U.S. history and some world history and uh, a lot of uh, core interdisciplinary core classes here. So uh, a lot of, of teaching, but I've been able to uh, find the you know find the time for for scholarship. I really find the scholarship um, as uh, a, a useful hobby and uh, great for uh, mental uh, mental health uh, and uh, to to keep me um, just kind of you know motivated to, to keep learning. And as far as uh, this topic is concerned, how did you uh, decide to to write about Lippmann uh, for this particular project? So I actually wanted to write about Bono. I, mean, I actually wanted to write about Bono. Um, but the uh, the editors of Spiritual Lives said, uh, "Well, you know, there's copyright issues there with musicians, so no." But you know, could you you know, maybe write about Eisenhower? And I said, "I don't do not I don't want to take on a U.S. president." And um, you know, we kind of brainstormed about you know who who had uh, what public intellectual had stature in the 20th century. Uh, and I immediately remembered from from graduate school days reading a lot of Walter Lippmann. And uh, in enjoying his books, and I said, you know, you know, what about Walter Lippmann? He'd be great for the series. And so, uh, you know, we kind of developed that and put it together. The uh, the interesting thing, the connection back to Bono, uh, is in graduate school. I'd written a paper on Bono uh, called "Bono: The Post-Christian Gadfly," where I developed kind of a theory of post-Christianity as you uh, two representing a, a a Christianity that had uh, become more of a mass cultural mass media phenomenon and really unmoored from any kind of you know traditional community or, or theology and um as i wrote the book on Lippmann, i didn't realize that in using a post-christian framework to make sense of Lippmann as well that i was uh in in many ways uh channeling that that first paper on bono it wasn't until the end that i was like oh uh so i kind of did write the uh the bono book after all i just uh used walter Lippmann to do it and for those who who aren't really familiar with Lippmann, uh, you know, would you would you give a high level introduction, just just who he was in a broad in broad sense, and you know, what if people know anything about him, what is he most known for? 
Uh, Lipman is, is best known as a political journalist and uh, op-ed uh, columnist. He was one of the persons who really developed the idea of the op-ed. Of course, op-eds are, are everywhere. They're ubiquitous today. Uh, in the years right after World War uh, I, uh, they were kind of new. He didn't, he didn't uh, you know, start that, but he probably did as much as anyone to popularize that trend through his uh, uh, thrice-weekly column, uh, Today and Tomorrow. Now he wasn't the he wasn't the most widely read columnist uh, in the United States, uh, but he uh, was close with about ten to twelve million, 12 million readers uh, in the United States and abroad. Uh, we believe he was the highest paid. Uh, he certainly uh, you know lived very well uh, and, and traveled uh, a lot. Um, in between uh, writing uh, these these columns, uh, he managed to write 21 books over the course of his uh, career. About three or four of them were collections of his op-eds, but a number were original works, including uh, his first book when he was uh, uh, just in his 20s, uh, Preface to Politics, which uh, won even the uh, applause of Teddy Roosevelt, one of uh, Lipman's uh, heroes. Uh, Lipman will go on to write uh, two bestsellers, uh, The Preface to Morals in 1929, which is really the, the centerpiece book uh, of the Lipman biography that I've written. Uh, and then during World War II, U.S. Foreign Policy, The Shield of the Republic, another bestseller. His, uh, his most enduring work is his 1922 work, Public Opinion, uh, which is considered by many to be the founding text of modern media studies uh, and one of the most trenchant criticisms of mass democracy. Uh, even somebody like John Dewey, who did not want to, uh, did not did not want to like the work, did not want to like uh, Lipman's findings, were nevertheless forced to admit that that this was the, the best work on democratic theory uh, to to that point. And so, public opinion is probably the book that's you know uh, people should still read and and still do read. Uh, and then the final thing I'll say about Lipman is he managed to, while writing critically. Uh, uh, of almost every U.S. politician and, and president uh, from the 1920s all the way into the 1970s. Uh, he somehow managed to befriend many of them, uh, to be invited by many of them to the White House, uh, to be able to advise them uh, on any number of issues and, you know, uh, outright uh, defy them in some ways, both in personal conversation and uh, in, uh, in, in print. Backing up a little from uh, from that that high level overview, just uh, taking it a little bit more granular, uh, what was Lippmann's youth like and and his time at Harvard? The, you know, the, really the early years for him. So Lippmann uh, came from a very privileged uh, background. Uh, he went to uh, Julius Sachs All Boys School uh, in New York, and so had a, a really good uh, education there. Uh, uh, his uh, family was was wealthy not you know not rich but certainly certainly wealthy uh he described him you know he described himself as having a comfortable uh existence but also uh pretty free i think as he said once his father allowed him to do whatever he wanted to do uh and so he had this really good education went to harvard with his friend carl binger and really expected to be able to do whatever he wanted to at Harvard uh, uh, until he realized that uh, Harvard was not uh, too kind to Jews uh, at the time. Uh, Walt uh, Lippmann was from a, a German-Jewish family, and uh, at Harvard at this time, you could not be uh, a part of the uh, social clubs uh, as a Jew. Uh, and uh, I mean, that was one of the, besides getting the Harvard education, uh, make networking through these clubs was really uh, essential to the Harvard experience. And, and Lipman and his friend Carl Binger were shut out of that. Uh, I think that played a large role in uh, Lipman turning to uh, socialism uh, and starting a socialist uh, society there on campus uh, and ultimately becoming involved in uh, socialist circles, a kind of bohemian uh, socialist circles. He was part of the bohemian crowd in New York as well, too. So he had uh, this phase, probably up until his service in, in World War I, where he was uh, running around with uh, a Bohemian crowd in, in Greenwich Village, and um, he worked for uh, a socialist mayor uh, in, in, uh, in the state of New York, uh, was uh, pretty radical on issues of class, on feminism, uh, for a while. And, and what were his religious views at that time, you would say? 
Uh, he was what we would describe as a nun. Uh, so he, uh, he, he rejected uh, Judaism uh, fairly early. Uh, so some letters between one of his uh, best friends, uh, Lucy, uh, and uh, in 1908, uh, where he's, he's writing about the, the temple that he had been confirmed in, that his parents went to. It was a, it was a re reform uh, Jewish community that really stressed assimilation. Uh, but that was even too extreme for Lipman. Uh, so he complained about uh, what he saw as this kind of uh, artificiality uh, of the uh, uh, of the uh, people who attended there uh, and that uh, Judaism was empty. Um, in his first book, he would uh, say that, you know, the Christian dream is dead. Uh, he was uh, really attracted to uh Probably through his his biggest and one of his biggest influences at Harvard was William James, uh, kind of uh, translated um, through James came to uh, know Frederick Nietzsche uh, pretty well, uh, and so a lot of his first book uh, was a lot of Nietzsche, and uh, he doesn't outright say God is dead, but uh, he's he's really kind of working from that vein. So um, a lot of his his life's work was now that uh, organized religions. Uh, can no longer play the uh, intellectual or social role that they played in the past. How do we get along? How do we hold together? How do we uh, stay happy? Uh, and that, you know, uh, that question uh, really uh, dictated all of his uh, all of his writings and thought. I would say all the way up until the end of his life in the nineteen seventies. You you give a a decent amount of attention to his nineteen twenty nine book, A Preface to Morals. So, what's this book about, and and what led you to focus so so much on this one? So he's he spends uh, a, a lot of the book, not I guess not not so much uh, attacking religion as much as just assuming. Uh, I think he's assuming that uh, his readers will understand that organized religions, uh, Christianity, Judaism in particular, uh, are dead or dying. Um, he, uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably that, that's probably about half the book. Uh, but then he he calls it the the acids of modernity. Uh, I think is uh, you know rather than kind of go through and uh, you know give a hard a, a answer for. Um, why this is happening to religion. He just coins this phrase, acids of modernity, uh, the conditions of modern life. And uh, I think particularly he kind of singles out cities uh, as places where uh, that are particularly um, uh, harmful towards religion, which is a common view at the time. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't fit the facts all that well. A lot of the leading fundamentalists, uh, including people he reported on, like John, uh, John Roach Stratton, the fundamentalist, uh, they're from cities. Uh, so religion thrived pretty well in the cities, but his assumption was that um, uh, big cities were uh, uh, that really like as long in rural life and simple life, you know, people could hold to religious views, but in cities, people were giving that up. And so, uh, given that, uh, given that secularization was really the order of the day, um, how do uh, individuals then uh, achieve a sense of integrity? Uh, he frames this really as kind of a paradox. Uh, human beings need an orthodoxy. He uses that phrase. Human beings need an orthodoxy in order to kind of order their desires and to, to, to essentially be happy and get along with others and get along with the, their environment. But they can't have an orthodoxy anymore. Uh, organized religions are dead. Uh, and so what's the substitute there? Uh, he kind of presents his first answer. It's one that he's immediately dissatisfied as soon as he publishes the book and starts to uh, tells his friends he's, he's, he sets out to write a sequel. Uh, but his first answer, without really uh, mentioning the words Stoicism or Epicureanism, that's pretty much what he goes to. Uh, a kind of uh, he talks about disinterestedness or detachment, or even uh, uses Jesus to say that Jesus reflected this religion of the spirit of somebody who, you know, just kind of went through life uh, unaffected, uh, disinterested. Um, so he, so his answer at that point was very uh, centered on how do individuals uh, get by uh, in the absence of. Uh, belief in divine revelation or, you know, the belief that divine revelation was, was possible. How do individuals get along? He tried to present that, present that answer. Uh, a lot of his later works would uh, address 
how do societies get along uh, in the absence of a kind of common uh, a common culture, what he eventually will call things like the higher law or traditions of civility in the absence of these, uh, how do societies hold together? And so he's always going back and forth between how do individuals get along in this kind of world? Uh, how do societies hold together in this kind of world? But the assumption running through it is organized religions uh, had really uh, were, were on their kind of last uh, last legs. Uh, he himself, even though he would, uh, I think I used the term affiliate, uh, he would affiliate um, with with various, particularly Christianity by the by the uh, kind of late twenties, early thirties. Uh, but he never, you know, officially uh, converts to any religion. Um, he remains probably the the best word to describe his religious views would be uh, humanist. Uh, although he would use terms to describe himself like uh, agnostic uh, at times, but he, he really uh, never accepted any kind of supernatural existence or, or revelation. Um, and then given that baseline, right, that the religion is, 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 is uh, impossible, or religious inheritance is possible, uh, how do individuals get along in that kind of world? How do societies hold together in that kind of world? And so uh, all of, I believe all of his political and diplomatic writings were written within that uh, philosophical and theological context. Yeah, move it, moving to discussing more, more of the, his political views, you know, what, one of the beauties of someone like Lippmann is that he's so, he wrote so much that you can kind of, you know, learn history alongside his writings. Uh, and, you know, what did Lippmann think about and how did he understand the Great Depression and then the New Deal response to it? He uh, understood the, the Great Depression. Um, uh, a, a critic, friend slash critic of him said, yeah, yeah, whenever, you know, Lippmann doesn't have the answers, he, he, quote, he quote, goes cosmic. Uh, and that was a lot of Lippmann's writings during the 1930s. It was well, it, it wasn't just simply that we had, you know, this problem of, you know, an international debt structure that had collapsed or lack of confidence in the market. He understood all of those things, right? He even cast him, tried to cast himself in the 1930s as a kind of public economist. He wrote more on economics than he wrote on anything, even though he had very little background on that at Harvard. Um, a, a lot of his writings were trying to address uh, and, and here again, where I think Lippmann was the proper subject for a spiritual biography, he tries to address the Great Depression really as a spiritual crisis, uh, a crisis of, of people who had kind of had, had lost uh, a moral compass or a lost an ability to uh, to get along with each other. Uh, a great critique of the 1920s jazz age. Uh, runs through his 1930s writings that that human beings have become soft and consumerist and you know too 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 urban it was very uh, very much a, a teddy roosevelt kind of critique of the 1890s was how uh, walter lipman approached the the 1920s and teddy roosevelt was uh if, if anyone besides william james was kind of uh lipman's hero it was is teddy roosevelt he kept coming back to teddy roosevelt's uh, idea of of cultural renewal through uh, a kind of tough, tough-minded, uh, you know, manly pulling oneself up and, and working hard. So there's a lot of critique uh, of, of of the 1920s leading to the Great Depression. You know, in in Lipman suggesting that Americans had gone soft and it was time to get tough. Uh, a part of that toughness was having to. Uh, you know, rethink politics. Uh, he was somebody who was, uh, for for as much as he criticized uh, New Deal policies, almost <laughs> almost everything Roosevelt did, uh, the parts of the New Deal uh, Roosevelt was or, or Lipman was very critical of. Uh, but the whole of it, the idea that government needed to do more to hold societies together, that we needed a a, a stronger executive branch. Um, that was that was something that was pretty consistent with him. So he was uh, both the, a chief apologist and a chief critic of the New Deal at the same time. Um, you'll find him, you know, one day criticizing the he really hated the the National Recovery uh, Administration. Uh, 
but he wasn't uh, too fond in, in, in the, the Wagner Act too, providing uh, uh, labor legislation, very critical of these things, even a little bit critical of public works programs. But you'll find him the next day uh, suggesting that the New Deal was really necessary uh, for, uh, for uh, the country to, to be able to hold together and endure this kind of crisis. What political identities was he identifying himself with mostly at this time? You know, how was he reflecting on his his earlier, uh, more more bohemian radical approaches? So he uh, will, uh, after kind of going through a, a socialist phase, he comes out uh, largely, uh, uh, it might even have started before, but certainly during and after World War One, uh, he would pretty much identify as a liberal. Uh, and uh, I think Time magazine would identify him in 1931 as the Moses of liberalism, uh, as kind of one of the chief voices for liberalism. And, and liberalism largely meant the, a Rooseveltian state, uh, a state in which the federal government, particularly the executive branch, uh, took more uh, responsibility, uh, exercised more authority to, to be able to hold the country together, uh, to uh, certainly to enact social justice. Uh, but also to just uh, you know keep uh, basic order uh, within that within that society. So uh, he largely identifies as a, a liberal. I suggest uh, that uh, I think I introduced the chapter on the Great Depression with a quote with an interview of him in the 1970s, where he says, uh, uh, telling uh, his biographer Ronald Steele, "I'm a conservative. I think I've always been a conservative." So <laughs> uh, I think. That wouldn't necessarily uh, run against his liberal identity as much as uh, it is that Lipman was somebody who understood that what constituted American liberalism uh, in the 20th century was something that was not on like uh, or had elements or should have elements uh, that an Edmund Burke was when, when Lipman talked about conservatism, he, he, he talked about Edmund Burke. Uh, or William Blackstone, uh, some older voices like that, that that modern liberalism needed to have uh, some el conservative elements there. So uh, it's in the 1930s, he's starting to read Burke, and uh, I think he's even uh, identifying um, thinkers like, uh, uh, policies like uh, Keynesianism uh, as a kind of conservatism, uh, as a kind of conservative alternative to, to, to socialism. I know that runs completely counter to how <laughs> uh, how Keynesianism is understood today uh, by the right, where it's considered a form of socialism. But uh, for Lipman, Keynesianism was really the alternative to socialism, or it was a kind of post-socialism. So uh, Lipman's uh, you know Lipman's political identity ran uh, liberal, uh, conservative. He's fairly consistent within the Democratic Party, although for a while he does uh, he does he does vote Republican. Um, but he's largely doing that still as a supporter of conservative Democratic uh, candidates and stuff. But he's he's kind of all over the place. Uh, the one I'll just say this in conclusion, um, as far as the difficulty of trying to categorize Lipman uh, politically, uh, this is an individual who would endorse uh, Teddy Roosevelt twice for president and Richard Nixon twice for president. So it's a pretty fascinating journey he had over the course of his life. Yeah, no, it, it, it's so it was so difficult for me to figure out, like to just to, to put Lippmann's views into into today's context, uh, because he really does seem to mix and match views that today we would think of um, as maybe cutting against each other. Uh, but you know, for for the time, obviously, it was so different. Think time things were so different, and he was working in a different environment you know you you also write a lot about his foreign policy views which were some of the most fascinating uh aspects of, of his views that you talk about uh and how he really did have a very um let's say a different foreign policy take than than maybe other standard liberals so so what what were his views on foreign policy during world war ii and then kind of leading into uh you know his book the cold war and his 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 popularization of that term mm -hmm. Uh, he seemed to be, uh, in, in many ways, an isolationist and a Wilsonian at the same time. Um, I, I would put him, uh, a, a term that I borrow from Robert Schulzinger in his book on the Council on Foreign Relations, which Lippmann was a part of for a long time, uh, realistic Wilsonian. And I think that that's probably the, probably the simplest way to categorize uh, Lippmann. He never 
uh, even for all of his upsets with uh, uh, with the, the state of world affairs after World War One, he never really gave up on Wilsonianism, particularly uh, America playing a, uh, a world ordering kind of role. Uh, at the same time, uh, his his best selling book, uh, U.S. Foreign Policy: Shield of the Republic from 1943, uh, tried. Uh, it's it's a book. It, it 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 does I think have Wilsonian elements, but it very much has isolationist elements too. Uh, Lipman recognized that uh, rather than some kind of idealistic League of Nations order, uh, that power Americans uh, needed to kind of understand the the, the limits of their power. Uh, and, and recognize kind of where their region or environment was. Uh, so Lipman was both in World War I and World War II as a huge uh, advocate for uh, the idea of an Atlantic community. Uh, I was one of the chief apologists for this because that's where he believed that uh, America uh, and its chief ally predominantly was and it's where the power was greatest. Uh, they could not, however, exercise power everywhere. Uh, and so uh, for Asia, for Eastern Europe, uh, was always a place that uh, Libman believed Americans needed to kind of respect their limits uh, and figure out how to work with uh, the great powers that were there. Uh, he always, uh, starting in World War I, um, he, uh, during World War I, he was an advocate for essentially leaving Russia alone, even after it had uh, fallen to uh, the Bolsheviks. Uh, the Russian Revolution, uh, Lipman, one of the 14 points that he wrote was let let Russia alone, uh, let Russia work this out. Let's not let's not worry about Russia. And that was pretty consistent for him uh, throughout his life. Uh, it wasn't that he was a, a communist sympathizer uh, at any point, but he did believe that Americans power uh, to be able to affect change, particularly in Eastern Europe and certainly over the Soviet Union was just very limited. Uh, and so Americans needed to figure out how to get along with the get along with the Soviets, which is why he was uh, so so critical. Took such a critical view of the the Truman Doctrine and and the belief that Americans could somehow uh, he could, could somehow uh, organize the world uh, irrespective of uh, uh, Chinese and, and and Soviet power. So his his approach to the Cold War was was you know definitely one of of skepticism, one of we should not this is not something that we should not a road that we should go down. We should uh, we should avoid this conflict at all at all costs. Yeah, uh, um, you know he 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 really tried, and and this kind of goes back to what he thought of as the the you know the the chief concern of World War Two. The chief concern of World War Two was to to. To end World War II uh, and to to get Germany uh, uh, pacified uh, and settled in its boundaries, uh, and ultimately to get Russia uh, to go back within its boundaries as well too. Uh, and after uh, World War II, that remained his priority. Um, the primary focus he believed uh, uh, in 1947, 1948 was he thought that Americans that the World War II really hadn't been settled. Uh, because the Soviets uh, and the Americans were still in Europe. Uh, and the chief goal should be, how do we get both the Americans and the Soviets out of Western Europe uh, and uh, out of Germany and then out of Eastern Europe as well, too? Uh, and so all the talk of, uh, you know, all the talk of um, concerns in the Middle East, uh, in Asia, uh, considered that his word secondary. Uh, what and, and all the way into the 1960s, his primary foreign policy focus was how do we end World War II, uh, particularly how do we get the Soviets to withdraw and uh, the Americans to withdraw from Europe as well, too. Uh, another book of his, his 1955 book, The Public Philosophy, is another that, that you give uh, particular attention to. So what was the public philosophy about it? And, and why was why was this, you know, another book that you decided to, to really highlight? So. You know, uh, for all of his kind of changes of opinion and interests, uh, he has this consistent uh, trying to explain what has what what has gone on in the 20th century, and uh, and I suggest that his his, his predominant uh, his predominant uh, thing he identifies as the problem of the 20th century is the, the the end of organized religions. Uh, 
uh, and what should we what should we do about it? Uh, a preface to morals was one answer to that. But as I said, it was immediately unsatisfactory. He, he writes to a friend, "I'm I'm, I'm setting out to write a sequel." Uh, he's he had been reading theology uh, before this. He starts reading uh, Catholic encyclicals uh, right after a preface to morals. Trying to figure, he's, he's reading people like uh, Arnold Toynbee, who's who's dealing with these kinds of issues as well too. Uh, very you know very different intellectual influences by the 1930s because he's trying to write this sequel. Uh, a preface, I, I would suggest he writes very sequels to a preface to morals, but uh, probably his best attempt to offer a, uh, a sequel was the public philosophy in 1955. Uh, given all given all these problems of social ordering in the absence of uh, a divinely ordered or orchestrated uh, society, uh, how do we get along? Uh, and he borrows uh, uh, he, he borrows a phrase from uh, 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 Sir, Sir, Sir Barker, I forget his first name. Uh, who wrote a book, Traditions of Civility, and and Lippmann just took uh, took the title and took a lot of Barker's writings and just kind of wrote his book around it. But he he did that a lot. He just didn't have the time to do a lot of the research and things. So he was he he borrowed very liberally from other people's works. And so the, the kind of centerpiece of public philosophy is uh, Americans had lost tradition of civility, and we needed to uh, you know we needed to get back to these. And so. Uh, kind of half of that book is is a, a kind of a rehash of public opinion. Here's the problems with democ modern democracies and why they can't hold together, uh, because the societies are too complex. Individuals do not have the, the means to uh, vote or keep their leaders accountable. Uh, so, 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 what do we do? We have to uh, uh, get back to or build some kind of consensus. A consensus that he calls various things. Uh, Traditions of civility. He also talks about uh, Confucius and uh, a mandate of heaven. Um, he'll at different points uh, look at Christian theology. He looks at pretty much everything in, uh, except for Judaism. Uh, he only uh, occasionally. You might you might know you you know from, from reading the book. He uh, not only did he reject Judaism kind of personally for himself, but he largely just did not want to talk about Judaism at all. For all of his talks of of a uh, kind of comparative uh, morality, uh, public morality, he largely just left Judaism out of it. It's just something that he did not want to draw any attention to because he's afraid it might draw attention to him himself. And you know, he had been hurt by anti-Semitism at various points in his in his life. So, uh, public philosophy was his attempt to say, you know, here's here's the things that we need to kind of recommit to as a society. Uh, if we are going to successfully hold together and meet our challenges moving forward. Uh, and what I kind of suggest there is that his, uh, while he's kind of playing this pastoral role of here's what we need to kind of come together and, and stay together, uh, the, the skeptic is very much there. Uh, he is not himself able to embrace any kind of moral or ethical or religious tradition himself and uh, ultimately kind of comes back, you know, comes back on and undercuts the very message of the book. You write in the uh, the acknowledgments of the book that, that some of this work that you did on the book came out of workshops on Cold War liberalism. Uh, and there, there's been a decent amount of discussion recently on, on Cold War liberalism. So, you know, what do you see as Lippmann's relationship to, to Cold War liberalism? And, you know, if you have any other comments just on the recent wave of scholarship that's been done on the topic? Yeah, it's been great uh, being a part of that, uh, you know, part of that project. I had drafted a lot of the book, uh, and then I got uh, the chance to uh, a chance to be a part of this uh, workshop, and we'll have an edited collection uh, coming out, uh, I think, with Cambridge uh, sometime soon. Uh, but my contribution was suggesting was simultaneously arguing that Walter Lippmann should be included uh, in the circles of Cold War uh, liberals. Um, for all of his rejection of the, the well, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Basically, let me say this, that he should be, uh, he, he kind of checked all the boxes of Cold War liberal, even though uh, most uh, histories of Cold War liberals don't mention, mention Lippmann for different reasons. But as soon as you put Lippmann in the Cold War liberal category, he doesn't really, he doesn't really fit, uh, fit. 
Uh, so what I suggest, I think, in the essay I've written for that volume is uh, Walter Lippmann, the, the Cold War liberal as conservative isolationist, or the conservative isolationist as Cold War liberal. Uh, it's kind of what we talked about. Lippmann just, he, uh, he, he himself uh, never uh, tried to be consistent in terms of <laughs> particular identities. Uh, uh, that's the that's the the, the skepticism that he uh, skepticism that he suggested you know characterized his life uh, led him to constantly be uh, interrogating a lot not not all of his uh, prejudices but a lot of them uh, a lot of American prejudices not all of them uh, and it led him to a very eclectic uh, eclectic position so he's somebody who belongs in a Cold War liberal volume, but he is somebody who is outside of it at the same time. But Lippmann's, Lippmann had this ability to be this, this insider outsider uh, for, for much of his, uh, for, for much of his history. How much of it was that he was, you know, really just charting this unique intellectual path and how much of it was maybe a streak of contrarianism? <laughs> it's obviously it's hard to read it into someone's mind, but I always wonder with these sorts of people, you know. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I almost wanted to, to to call the book the constant contrarian, or people suggested to me, yeah, you really should should call uh, should call Lipman that. I think I settled on instead of contrarian. I think I settled on chameleon as a, a kind of final uh, way to to make sense of him, but. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's a mix. I think it's a mix of Lipman trying to be uh, and maintain an intellectual uh, an intellectual honesty uh, in, in a way that led him to be very disorderly. I think uh, you know one of the you know, one of my favorite insights I had about him was you know his life, his social life, his family life was so incredibly regimented. Um. And the kinds of views of, of American society that he argued for were ones that were fairly, if, if, if kind of followed through, it would be pretty regimented as, as well, too. Not quite Handmaid's Tale, but, uh, you know, not, not too far away from that uh, as well either. Um, so he's so uh, concerned about uh, social order, but when it comes to the intellectual life, uh, he was just a mess and he was, was comfortable with that. So I think part of it was an intellectual honesty that he really was a skeptic. Uh, but I think part of it was uh, when people he were around, when he saw them taking a particular position, he just decided whether it was right or not, he just decided I'm gonna go against that. Now, ultimately, did he uh, did he come down uh, against uh, uh, Harry Truman and George Kennan uh, against the, you know, the Truman Doctrine and the, the kind of uh, Cold War policy and all that kind of language? He, did he, did he come down uh, against that uh, because of some kind of uh, staunch intellectual commitments on his part, or is it because uh, Harry didn't invite him to the White House for drinks in the way that Franklin Roosevelt did? He didn't get to spend a lot of time in the White House with with Harry Truman. Uh, Truman didn't really want Lipman around uh, too much. <laughs> yeah, that, those are hard to hard to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you also talk talk about you know he, he's a he's a fascinating person because he you know he wrote wrote for so much of his life and covered so many topics um and, and you also talk about you know, i think he died if i remember correctly in 74 um yeah. so he really he really saw a lot but you know how, how did he approach and think about civil civil rights you know i think he was the civil right when the civil rights movement was really getting going he was by that point in time maybe touching 70. So his first writings on on the issue of civil rights go all the way back to the first Red Scare. Uh, he writes an, uh, uh, he writes a book on uh, the Red Terror that had happened in Chicago. You know, Chicago had seen uh, during World War One uh, part of the Great Migration, a lot of movement of African Americans into the city. Uh, and in 1919, they had a huge uh, race riot. Uh, Lipman wrote an introduction to uh, to the study of that Red Terror. Uh, Lipman was fairly, you know, fairly consistently against red scares in the United States. Uh, one thing that I, you know, find kind of most noble or likable, like likable about him is how he was always trying to you know, put down hysteria, except when he wasn't. Um, but his first writing was an introduction for this book, and he 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 talks about race parallelism. 
Uh, and it's not so much that he's arguing, therefore, uh, for for desegregation for integration. And in some ways, he uh, he he kind of sees past integration as uh, as as the right goal. Uh, I think he he even suggests there that if 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 integration at that point could only look for African Americans, like trying to accommodate. Uh, white standards of of culture, class, taste, what have you, uh, and instead, what African Americans should have the freedom to develop uh, along parallel lines, right? So it's it's this interesting way of maintaining separate but equal, uh, but also suggesting that African Americans uh, need to develop their own, they need to, need to develop their own kind of uh, standards of culture and success. Uh, and they need to have the freedom to be able to do so, uh, and they should have the resources to be able to do so. He uh, will will not kind of revisit that race parallelism. Um, he will uh, in, in, instead become a reluctant supporter of uh, civil rights uh, in the 50s. He did, was not uh, uh, in favor of the, the Brown decision, thought that it was uh, upsetting the social order uh, in, in, in a way that... Uh, in, in a way that uh, just wasn't helpful, right? So he he believed African Americans should have more rights, but uh, just kind of government uh, government enforced uh, uh, integration. Uh, he was largely opposed to and didn't really come around to it uh, until probably the early 1960s or, or so. So he's probably put him in kind of a a, a a racial moderate. He's not a southerner, but he would fit kind of a, a southern moderate type of let's. Let's make moderate progresses towards, uh, you know, towards uh, towards uh, civil rights. Um, he ends his life by saying positive things about black power, and and what I suggest is that shouldn't surprise us, given what he had said at the beginning of his life, uh, that race parallelism was in some ways. Uh, the, I think he could see his support for black power in some ways, uh, in that race parallelism, uh, in that African Americans were taking. Uh, uh, instead of uh, trying to work with white liberals, uh, African Americans were looking to uh, kind of develop their own communities, their own strength, their own power, what have you. And uh, Lipman believed that that ultimately was a positive, uh, a positive thing. And so I think that there is, uh, uh, for all of his reluctance to support civil rights, there is uh, a kind of uh, forethought uh, in in Lipman. Uh, that that ultimately runs back to his theories about colonialism and, and, and colonized people taking on the values of, of of their colonizers and trying to avoid that for African Americans. I think he kind of ends his life uh, uh, around there. Uh, yeah. Not that he's not that he's going out, you know, significant. Not that he's kind uh, kind of you know joining the Black Panthers or anything like that <laughs> or endorsing them. But he does recognize, and in some way that Richard Nixon and and, and, and did too. Uh, recognize that there is a positive value in, in African Americans uh, looking to uh, kind of achieve uh, their own standards of success and and build uh, build uh, their own communities up uh, and, and really kind of gain freedom uh, in ways that uh, uh, integration or working with white liberals was going to make possible. Yeah, his views uh, sort of remind me of like the you know the views of like a libertarian like Murray Rothbard at the time, sort of a skeptic of the mainstream civil rights, but then, you know, interestingly endorsing or, you know, creating dialogue with, um, with, with black power, with advocates of like the black power movement. Uh, you know, a, a thread that's really running throughout this, in, this entire book is, is, and we've talked about a little bit, is just Lippmann's views on, on Christianity and his understanding of the role of religion in civic life. So, I, you know, is there, there a sort of takeaway that you think that people should have about how Lippmann thought about religion and civic life and just Christianity in general. Sure, sure. Um, so I, I was thinking about this interview, thinking about the book again, when I was reading uh, uh, an, an op-ed in the Washington Post last week, uh, and it was entitled, uh, I'm a nun, I wish we had a, not uh, N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, I'm a nun, I wish we had a church. Uh, and well, I could I could fully expect uh, Walter Lippmann to have written that <laughs> you know, written that piece, because uh, I think that encapsulates in many ways 
uh, his, his his entire uh, life and, and body of work. He was from very early on uh, a, a religious nun. Uh, he's had no faith in institutionalized uh, religions whatsoever. Uh, had enough positive appreciation, I guess, of Judaism to uh, you know to be uh, uh, to have, have a uh, uh, to be confirmed, but ultimately rejects that pretty early on. Uh, eventually comes around to to what he calls the classical and Christian heritage in the 1930s, as he tells his wife, Helen. Uh, but he never commits to these. He never you know, steps into a church. Um, but he recognized not just that, uh, and a lot of this, this op-ed in Washington Post was uh, on you know, as religious institutions decline, well, that's a big part of American social capital. So how are Americans going to, you know, we already have a problem of getting along with each other. How are, when we're not even interacting in, in this kind of way through synagogues, mosques, churches anymore, is this just going to exacerbate polarization in the United States? And, and that was a concern of his, uh, just kind of the social aspect. But uh, I think what what uh, Lippmann would suggest too is it's it's more than just the the social absence of religions. It's the intellectual absence too. Uh, that uh, religions provide a, a kind of uh, a sense of security, comfort, place, uh, belonging in the cosmos for for individuals and communities. That when we lose that, what's what's going to take that place? And he never really finds that for himself. Um, he and, and he seemed to be pretty pretty comfortable not not ever settling down in anything. Uh, he uh, took a very pragmatic view. This is where I suggest that this is a post-Christian attitude, right? It's not a, a, a truly secular attitude. It's a post-Christian one uh, where Lipman is willing to kind of entertain that, yes, organized religions can still have functional values, uh, both the social aspects that they provide, but intellectual aspects of uh, helping individuals feel safe, secure, um, you know, in, in, in integral providing uh, a kind of public morality, like love your neighbor, you know, these kinds of things that they serve a functional, uh, a functional value, right? Um, very much a, I think very much a George Washington farewell address kind of thing that, you know, uh, for, for America to work, uh, the American people needed some kind of moral or religious traditions that they could that they could hold to not just to get along with each other, but really to, to, to feel whole in them, in themselves. And so, uh, Lipman never really gave up, I think on that, on, on that kind of search for a kind of replacement or, or, well, to, to invoke his, his, his mentor, William James, uh, a moral equivalent, uh, for orthodoxy. We can't have Christianity. We can't have Judaism. We can't have Islam. What can we have? that is, uh, what, what can we have to take its place? We need something there. Uh, we can't just be nuns. Uh, and this is interesting, the flood of articles, op-eds and things that are research that's coming out suggesting that, yeah, we need something there. <laughs> I think Walter Lippmann would be, uh, uh, Walter Lippmann would be like, yeah, but I told you guys this like a hundred years ago. Yeah, he, he clearly then his entire life was in some on some level engaging with, with Nietzsche's thought and Nietzsche's concern about the death of God and the vacuum that that might might leave people a spiritual vacuum you know after people have oh sorry I'll, I'll let you no I was gonna say absolutely yeah yeah I you know after people people have listened to this and 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 uh, and read your book you know is there one particular book or essay or thing that that Littman wrote that you think it represents the very best of him like the, the one thing that you would recommend that, that anyone who's at all interested in Littman should should check out <laughs> well I think that the book that's most revealing of Littman himself if you're interested in Littman would be a preface to morals uh, if you just wanted to read Littman directly uh, talking about his 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 views of the world and politics and self and morality, religion, that that would be the most, uh, you know, that would be the most direct book. Um, if, if, if readers come away wanting to know more about, I mean, it's it's a very much an intellectual biography. If they come away wanting to know more about Lippmann, the person, you know, Ronald Steele's biography, you can't, you, you can't replace that. 
Uh, he had personal access to to Helen France, uh, Helen, uh, sorry, to Helen and and Walter, uh, all of their papers, uh, and he had thirteen years uh, to write that. Uh, and uh, it's a it's an incredible biography. It rightly won the the Pulitzer and the Bancroft, and you know, uh, I'm sorry, not the Pulitzer, National Book Award. Uh, it's a great biography. That's a, so that's a great place for people to go, you know, to kind of learn more about Lipman himself. Um, but I think that I mean, the most enduring work for Lipman still is uh, public opinion. That's probably the one that, uh, yeah, don't read public philosophy. <laughs> it's a bit of a mess, but read public opinion. Uh, public opinion is, 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 is really good in terms of his uh, applying of kind of Jamesian psychology to why democracies have a really hard time working or just can't work. Uh, public opinion is probably his his most enduring uh, enduring work there. So if you want to learn more about Lipman, read a preface to morals or read uh, Steele's biography. If you want to learn more about, uh, if you want to get his kind of best work, uh, then I would say uh, uh, um, public opinion uh, is that. Uh, but he's he's got something for everyone. If you're conservative, read uh, you know, read the, the the Good Society, uh, read the first half of the Good Society, uh, his 1937 book, where he's complaining about the New Deal as a form of collectivism and and stuff. Just don't read the second half, where he's suggesting that the solution to the New Deal is Keynesianism. <laughs> no, he he really he really does have something for for everyone. <laughs> you know, I, I suppose that's what happens when you you know when you write nonstop for for your entire life, you know, with a, uh, you know, with, with essentially inside the inside track to, to world leaders and, you know, and, and, you know, want to, uh, to, to talk about everything, you know, and of course, uh, you know, listeners should, should definitely check out Walter Lippmann, American skeptic, American pastor. Um, well, Mark, thank you so much for being a guest on the new books network. It was great to speak with you about, uh, Walter Lippmann. He, he really is just one of these, these fascinating, you know, American characters who just really does, uh, you know, is really is a person that if people don't know, know about him, they should, they should really, really, really study up. Uh, but thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Of course.